Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have this morning to gather as your people and to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, you are Lord at the very beginning, even before time began, but you spoke this world into existence, demonstrating your power over earth and sea, over mountains and the rocks. You calmed the storms at the time of your ministry with the word of your power. You walked upon the seas, demonstrating that your way was in whirlwind and storm and clouds and sea. You caused this world to flourish with rivers that stream forth across the landscape with life-giving water. Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon burst into bloom at the power of your hand. Yet at the snap of your sovereign fingers, all of these can wither just the same. This is because that you are God. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. In light of your great power, Jesus Christ, we are awed and amazed that you took on flesh, stooped so low, condescended, came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, to humble yourself, to fulfill the plan of redemption, taking on the form of a servant, walking in, on the same ground that we now share, fulfilling the law with obedience and perfection to the absolute T, and then going to Calvary to suffer the judgment that our sin deserved. Oh, the God of heaven has become a man and died in our place, and so we, upon this revelation, are eternally grateful. I pray as we worship you in light of these truths this day, that you would be glorified through the proclamation, the confession, the obedience and faith of your people. And now as we turn to your immortal word, to the record of the history of redemption that displays the glory of our Lord and Savior throughout all time, I pray we would be inspired, we would be educated, encouraged and equipped to proclaim your glories beyond this place to a world dead and blind in their transgressions. May we make the unseen kingdom visible through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Lord, portrayed, portrayed in your word on our lips as a result of the Spirit's use of the means of this service today and all that you might be glorified, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Praise God. This morning we have the great privilege of opening up the scriptures together in the minor prophet Nahum. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. Let's consider this morning verses 9 through 15, the second half of the first chapter of Nahum. Nahum has written his oracle and vision concerning the town, the city of Nineveh, that great and imposing now capital of the country of Assyria, that's a formidable warlike people that has conquered successfully many nations and has lifted up their iron fist, as it were, against the people of God themselves. And so in light of these truths and these great sins that this people in Nineveh have committed against the Lord of glory, the day of reckoning has finally come, and Nahum proclaims the word of God, holding accountable these people for their transgressions. The aim of this morning's message is to chronicle the glory of God through His international exploits. There are times in Scripture where God is shown to deal with whole nations, whole people groups, 
Nahum exhibits one of those times in his proclamation. So we chronicle, therefore, in the record of this minor prophet, the glory of God through his international exploits, the way he dealt with Assyria, who was opposed to his people in Israel. The title of this morning's message is Policeman of the World. I couldn't resist that sort of politically evocative title, Policeman of the World. (laughs) These days, some people wonder if America is trying to be or ought to be the policeman of the world. We're the world's great superpower, so we set up army bases all over the place in the interest of sort of keeping the peace, I guess. That's the ostensible reason. Others think our interests are more nefarious and and uh, we have all kinds of mixed motives. Those, all of the above is probably true. And so in this presupposition, this vision for the influence of our nation, we suppose that we can bring balance to the world's politics and the world's uncertainty and the world's tendency towards conflict. And so we do so through humanistic means, through army bases, diplomacy, and international bodies, and United Nations, and all of these different schemes to try to bring some order to this very unpredictable landscape of geopolitical human affairs that trouble our globe now, even as these things troubled the globe during the time of Nahum's, uh, Nahum's tenure, as a, tenure as a prophet of God. But the message from the Word of God today is any of these means to try to control, to try with, to exert sovereignty over the peoples of the earth that is outside of what God alone has decreed and can accomplish is foolhardy indeed. There is but one policeman of the world, may I submit to you. There is but one power that can bring order to this universe, to this world, let alone this entire universe, and that is the Lord over the nations. That is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And this is the one of whom Nahum prophesies in his first chapter here. So would you stand with me, if you would, again, as we consider the Scriptures in reverence and fear, and follow along as I declare to us Nahum chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. Here we have the Holy Word of God. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. But you came one, from you came one, who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Verse 15, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Last week's introduction to the book of Nahum, we considered Nahum 
as the sequel to the book of Jonah, which we've covered in recent weeks. And there is some balance and some contrast between the two books. In, in spite of what Jonah would prefer, God is introduced to the nation of Nineveh through the book of Jonah as gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and relenting from disaster. Now, this message of God's mercy and grace was realized in the city of Nineveh because they repented of their great sin against the Lord. The Lord had mercy upon them, and this city experienced one of the most amazing revivals, perhaps, in all of history, where a pagan nation, pagan people of 120,000 strong, from the youngest, from the poorest to the most influential, even the king himself, put on sackcloth and ashes and repented before the Lord. But as history records, it seems that this revival only lasted a generation. And these pagans turned back, presumably, to their wicked ways, worshiping their gods who they thought gave them power to be victorious in war. They inflicted their battle campaigns, terrorizing their neighbors, acquiring territory, and executing people in the worst kinds of war crimes and atrocities one can imagine. And so as they turned to their false, violent, bloodthirsty gods, which were nothing more than demons, and as they reverted to their old ways, traditions, behavior, and national identity, now Nahum, the prophet, introduces the Lord of glory to them once again, but this time in his jealousy, in his vengeance, and in his wrath. This is what we covered last week, the supreme jealousy of the Lord. Nahum introduces the reckoning Lord according to his character traits that are just and will not clear the guilty. He is jealous and an avenging God. Nahum tells us in verse 1, avenging and wrathful. He keeps wrath for his enemies. And though he says in verse 3, the Lord is indeed slow to anger, we find he is also great in power. And thus, the closing of verse, or the next phrase in verse 3, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So we see then in context the scriptural history of Nahum and these prophecies against the nation of Assyria and its capital Nineveh and the working of God bringing a time, a reckoning where he enforces his law among the nations. We, we see therefore scriptural history combining with prophecies like this oracle and vision of Nahum providing examples of the very obvious and inevitable judgments of God against the most self-confident and apparently successful foes, at least for a time, of the Lord and His people. Yes, even whole nations. Matthew Henry insightfully deduces from our text today the following. He says, Those who make themselves vile by scandalous sins, God will make vile by shameful punishments. Our Lord has made an example in history of nations who have risen up to challenge His authority and purposes. We ought to learn from Nahum that He will surely do it again if nations exalt themselves, that is, against and above the knowledge of God. Let us fear, therefore, and pray for our world, our nation, accordingly. And yet, even more than this, in our passage today, Nahum 1 9 through 15. The genius of God's design for Scripture is further revealed 
when we find his purposes pending, in the pending destruction of Nineveh serving multiple effects or serving multiple purposes. You'll notice the language of verse 15 may be familiar to you. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. This is because this verse, or this, these words are quoted in several other places through Scripture. This reference to gospel or good news publication in verse 15 joins other passages throughout Scripture to signal a greater meaning and prophetic weight to Nahum's words. And this meaning goes above and beyond the immediate occasion even. That is the destruction of Assyria and Nineveh. So let us consider then in our text today how the Lord indeed shames nations. After introducing the reckoning Lord according to His attributes of jealousy, vengeance, and wrath. Then in our passage today, Nahum goes on to demonstrate how the Lord brings a great nation to ruin. How He shames a people that is standing against Him. He does this, I submit to you, in four ways. First, there are schemes that are foiled. Secondly, strength is broken. Thirdly, stature is humiliated. And fourthly, there is a surpassing word that is spoken. Schemes foiled, strength broken, stature humiliated, and a surpassing word spoken. Let us consider these four categories in our text today. First of all, Nahum 1, 9 through 11. Notice how the schemes of Nineveh are foiled. What do you plot against the Lord? Nahum asks in verse 9. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like tangled thorns. This would be the powers that be, if you will. The leaders and the rulers, the nation and the policies and the actions of Nineveh and Assyria. They are like tangled thorns, entangled thorns, verse 10, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. So we see that the schemes and the plans, the wicked designs of Nineveh and Assyria are foiled by the Lord. I mentioned in the introduction to this message today that in our time, there are plenty of examples of schemes and ideas and societies and policies and world bodies. Examples today abound uh, similar uh, to the intent of Assyria to control according to their own purposes and to their own ends global affairs. Today we have people, play, uh, places, areas, and realms, and committees, and summits, and nations, and societies that presume to do the exact same thing, unaccountable bureaucracies. They all presuppose, they all assume they have power to sovereignly dictate, to scheme, and to uh, interact and to manipulate global affairs to their national or personal interest. And so, in light of the reality of this today, it is important for us to look at the Word of God and see what the consequences of this kind of behavior are. And they are listed for us in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? The schemers, the plotters, the planners, the plans of 
this day and age that seek to exalt themselves above the Lord, what do they plot against the Lord? As it was then, so it is today. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Ultimately, they will find themselves in entangled like thorns, like drunkards. They will be reduced to unreasonable fools. They will be consumed like stubble, fully dried. Indeed, they plot in vain. Mark read to us this morning our worship text from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 asks this question rhetorically, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So like Nineveh and like Assyria, it has been the, in the course of nations and in the history of the world, it has been the common default action of peoples to rise up and to declare themselves autonomous, to declare themselves sovereign over the Lord to plot and scheme, to try to take advantage of affairs and their influence to their own ends, disregarding the law of God. These rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who is His anointed? That would be the Christ, Jesus Himself, who is in fact the only true King of kings and Lord of lords. And they say things like this, this language of self-aggrandizement, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is, let us disregard and reject the law of God, the word of God, and the truth of Scripture. Fools have arisen, emboldened by their war-making abilities, by their powers of influence, by the land that they control, and by their military exploits, And they have said, we will throw the bonds of God's word and his rules aside. We will cast them from us. We will declare our sovereignty and do things our way. But the perspective from glory follows in verse 4. From God's vantage point, he sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, in spite and scorn, that is to say. He will speak to him in his wrath. Remember, these are the character traits that Nahum introduced the reckoning Lord to the city of Nineveh and to us in. He is wrathful and jealous and vengeful against his adversaries and enemies. The Lord will speak to them, that is those who take authority unto themselves in this world, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If it's Jesus Christ versus the nations, who do you think will win? The entire, entirety of scriptural revelation declares to us that Jesus Christ is victorious and Lord of all. If He has defeated our own sin by His work on Calvary, then He will defeat the nations who exalt themselves as if they were King of Kings and they were Lord of Lords. His battle campaign will be ultimately successful. And though for a time, In God's purposes, He allows nations to exert a certain amount of authority and to rise. The old adage is true of each one of them. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. There was an analogy that Spurgeon used to use of an eagle and a crustacean, like a clam, think of this. And the eagle wants to get at that muscle inside that hard shell, so what does he do? He flaps his wings higher and higher. And this clam might be thinking, wow, I'm the king of the world. I'm the king of the clams. No clam has risen to great heights such as I have. 
When that eagle lifts up that clam high enough, what do you think he does? Flying over a rocky cliff, he strategically at that point where, that he desires, releases his talons. And slowly but surely with increasing speed, the speed of gravity, what is 120 feet per second? That clam, that muscle smashes upon the rocks. The shell shatters in a hundred pieces and the flesh inside is now available for the consumption of the bird of prey. This is an analogy of the sovereignty of the Lord in the course of rebellious nations. Sometimes they rise, but God, like the great eagle, will lift them over the cliff of His justice and drop them like a muscle, like a clam, only to be shattered and consumed. If they do not heed the message, repent, for God has set His anointed one in Zion. Yet forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That is a message that ought to be responded to with sackcloth, ashes, fasting, and repentance. But if you continue to find confidence in your war machine and in your own ideas, then the inevitable day will finally come when God, the schemes of man will be foiled by the Lord and it will be proven in history as it is in all through Scripture that the kings of the earth indeed plot in vain. Psalm 52. You know, in our day, we live in a time where God has allowed in His sovereignty certain nations to arise and to great degree even our own in spite of their rebellion against Him. This is a good time in history to memorize psalms. Psalms like Psalm 2, my family's working on that one right now. Here's another one we've memorized because we need these words close to us when we're tempted to doubt that God is in control or tempted to invest our hope in something other than Him to give us security on the international or otherwise stage. Psalm 52 proclaims, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. His tongue plots destruction. He is like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. It goes on in verse 5, that God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. But hope is found in the remainder of the passage. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying, see the man would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. You see in Psalm 52, the righteous join in the chorus of laughter in heaven. The Lord laughs in derision at those who would exalt themselves upon the throne of international sovereignty and say it's only a matter of time when you will be dashed to pieces. Now, in Nahum 1, this destruction and justice is pictured in poetic terms. Entangled thorns, drunkards as they drink, consumed like stubble fully dried. These are pictures of destruction that are not uncommon to Scripture. Psalm 58, 9, Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, he will sweep them away. What's the picture here? Well, in the Near East and in this area, a lot of times you would find dried out thorns. And if you wanted to get a fire going really quickly, you would grab this bundle of dried thorns, a tangled up uh, uh, small twigs with a lot of surface area. And you would place that under your fuel 
when you would strike, you know, your spark or what have you, blow a little bit. And when the right combination of spark and thorn, dried thorns, met one another, it created almost an explosion as that tinder immediately heated up and caught flame. Uh, some of you might have had a real Christmas tree this year. We've been doing fake lately. It seems like cheating. But with the real Christmas tree, what happens after uh, a, a couple weeks or maybe a month, especially if you don't water it, the tree begins to turn, well, over enough time, a different color. And we've all seen those pine trees that are just bright, bright orange because all of the life-giving chlorophyll or whatever is drained out of the needles and it's nothing but dry tinder. What happens if you bundle up a little newspaper and put it under that tree? Well, it's dangerous. The explosive power of that dry tinder, in an instant, that tree is consumed. And those pine, pine, or the, the pine needles catch the flame and they burn quickly and hot. And pretty soon, that beautiful Christmas tree is reduced to a few charred sticks. This is what the Lord does to nations that exalt themselves above Him. They are like entangled thorns. And when the flame of His justice, His jealousy, vengeance, and wrath touches those dried needles, as it were, they're instantly engulfed in flame and destroyed. There are famous battle campaigns that have been waged through history. And to this day, students of military history and strategy study those campaigns as great uh, soldiers and those great generals through the ages. But one thing is true, that it doesn't matter how the tactical advantage an army might have, how wise and experienced their general might be, and how well-equipped and battle-hardened all his soldiers are. If you give them enough strong drink, you can turn any army into a batch of fools. And this has happened through history. Daniel 5, we won't go there today, but Belshazzar is indulging himself in a feast. He's drinking out of the vessels stolen from the temple of God and having all the cavorting good time you could possibly imagine as the most powerful, rich, uh, imperial leader in the world at that time. And suddenly the party's crashed by the hand of God who writes on the wall, right? Mine, mine, tekel, farsin, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting, and everyone is stunned. But imagine their surprise only increasing when just an hour later, the Persian forces have crawled through the aqueducts of the city and Babylon is overthrown in like 45 minutes. Do you see what has happened in that incident? God has reduced this powerful nation and its leaders to fools in a state of drunken stupor and overrun them by touching the flame of his judgments, his wrath and vengeance, to the tinder of their rebellion and lawlessness. And in this drunken orgy, they lose their empire in just moments. This is the power of our God that will eventually be exercised against every one of his enemies. Like stubble fully dried, he reiterates this idea. So that's the poetic justice, if you will, that we see portrayed here that comes upon an enemy. No matter if they are an individual or a nation, if they do not repent of their lawlessness. Turn with me to Isaiah 36. For you, plot, you uh, came, from you came one, it says in Nahum 1.11, who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. In the book of Isaiah, there's a record of a counselor uh, from Assyria, 
And no doubt this reference at, uh, in Nahum at least recalls this example as we assume Nahum wrote after Isaiah. In Isaiah 36, Hezekiah, he's the king of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has already fallen prey to Assyria. That's the nation in question that Nahum prophesies to. In the 14th year, Isaiah 36, 1 of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit at the upper pool in the highway to the washer's field. So the king of Assyria, Sennacherib at the time, sent Rab, the Rabshakeh. And I am told that this term means royal counselor. He was in charge of military affairs. He would have been like, I don't know, an official from the State Department or something like that, or a general commanding officer in the army. He was in charge, in charge to some degree of Assyrian military or foreign policy. So this Rabshakeh, he comes right up to the walls of Jerusalem, and he has a word. This counselor says the following, verse 13, He stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Hezekiah, the righteous king of Judah, who trusted in the Lord to save him. Yes, an inferior nation, both in numbers and in might, and in war uh, paraphernalia and so on, but he did the right thing. He called out to the Lord. But now this counselor is coming to him with this propaganda. Verse 15, Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one his own fig tree, and each one will drink water of his own cistern. Do you see what the message is from the wicked king? He says, make peace with us. The world is calling us even this day. Make peace with us. May not do it in the same kind of international scenario, but this principle is at play in each one of our lives. Make a compromise. Make a treaty with the world's way of doing things. Uh, seed some of your trust in the Lord of glory to the promise that this world has to offer. And if you do so, you will prosper. You will experience peace. Each one of you will eat from his own vine. We'll let you keep your property. You can even uh, partake of its produce, each one of his own fig tree. You can drink the water from your own cistern. All that required is that you follow the word of this wicked king of Assyria and basically obey and listen to him and not the king who has been on his face before the Lord, trusting in the Almighty to save him. Until I come down and take away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Verse 18, Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? The gods, and he goes through this list of nations where their gods haven't helped them. And the implication is, you're next in this line of dominoes falling. But they were silent and said to him, not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Do not listen to the words of the great counselor, the Rabshakeh from Assyria, from Sennacherib the king. Back in Nahum 1, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. The Rabshakeh from Sennacherib was a worthless counselor. He said, I can promise peace and provision 
prosperity and security if you just bow to the evil king and kingdom. It's inevitable. You're going to be overrun anyway. You're tiny compared to the nations we've already conquered. Don't trust in Jehovah, your king and his God. Trust in us. We've proven that we are influential and powerful in this long train of exploits and influence that we boast behind us. We will see a little later the fate of Rabshakeh and company. Needless to say, the Lord shames nations by foiling their schemes. Secondly, he breaks their strength. Verses 12 and 13 in our text today in Nahum 1. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and I will burst your bonds apart. One of the ways that the Lord shames a nation is to break their strength. You know, one bad day in Wall Street can set so many forces in our nation into a panic. You have only to crash the computers in a, in a, in a, you know, uh, across the trade exchanges in our world today to break the strength and the resolve of many, many layers and elements of our society. We boast as if we're God and we hang by a tenuous thread. We're fools in this nation. You know, if you follow the markets or any of these other extremely volatile measures of the power and influence of our day, you'll come to see that we stand on very shaky ground indeed. And the Lord says that when we are at full strength, when any nation that denies Him is at full strength, He reserves the right at the point of His choosing to cut us down like a forest of trees. You know, a forest of trees may seem like a place where long-term growth has allowed all of these centuries to stand through the ages and these proud trees. But do you know that just one bolt of lightning sent from the God of the storm can sweep away in one wildfire years and years and years of growth? And how long will it take to restore that forest to its grandeur that it once had? It would take decades perhaps a century, perhaps more. And this is the idea. What, according to the schemes of man, takes centuries to build, the Lord can reduce to rubble and char in one hour. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. The Lord is saying through Nahum, never mind the numbers. He said the same thing through Hezekiah. He said the same thing through Gideon. Never mind the numbers of the Midianites. In one fell swoop, the Lord can break the strength of the enemy. Why does he allow the enemy to be strong? Why does he allow them a certain measure of influence? Well, Isaiah 10 tells us why. God has purposes in these kinds of things. One of those purposes in allowing Assyria to be as strong, apparently as strong as they were at that time, was that they were his rod. It says in Isaiah 10:5, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like mire of the streets. So here we have a picture of Assyria as the rod in God's hand. Later, verse 12, The Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. 
So Assyria has served its usefulness to the Lord. He no longer needs this tool. So let's see what's going to happen. By the strength of my hand, the Lord speaking, first person, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. Uh, excuse me, this is a voice of Assyria in their pride, assuming they're like God. Verse 14, my hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the people. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. So Assyria is boasting because they, like a, someone who owns a hen's, hen house and goes in and just, how easy is it to steal the eggs from the chickens? They boast that it's been that easy for them to conquer their foes. But in verse 15, we see what's truly going on. Shall the axe boast over him who hews it? So Assyria is an axe in the hand of the woodsman, the Lord. And the axe is boasting, look how awesome I am. I, am. I just split another log. I just split another log. The axe would be a fool to boast of its power to split wood. Or does the saw magnify itself against those that wield it? How stupid would it be for a saw to boast, I cut so much wood, I'm so awesome. Why? Because the saw is powerless without the carpenter who controls its every move. And if the rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord of hosts will send wasting sickness upon his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour. Notice this language, his thorns and briars in one day. Again, that tinder, highly flammable tinder is pictured there. This is what Assyria is. And listen again, the destruction of a forest is in view again in verse 18. The glory of his forest and his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The Lord is flaunting his power to throw away an axe after he's done using it. The Lord is taunting the nations by saying, you are a tool and I'm about to reject you. The Lord is saying, you're nothing but a force that I will destroy or tinder that I will ignite by my power. And these were the words that God gave through his prophets to nations that would rise up against him. He will break their strength in his due time. In so doing, the Lord will deliver, says that I will break his yoke from off you, Nahum 1.13, and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord was using the nation of Assyria to chastise his people. That was one of his sovereign purposes. He was bringing uh, uh, correction, punishment upon the nation of Israel through this wicked nation. But now he will destroy them. So this is the way our Lord works. Do not think he's doing this today, that, a Lord, that the Lord is allowing certain nations to rise. You know, we get freaked out by the nuclear boasts of a Kim Jong-un, this little dictator on the other side of the world. Do not think that God is in control of the nuclear button, you know, on the desk of that pudgy little dude. Absolutely. Just as much as he is in control of the nuclear button uh, at the desk of the president of these United States. It doesn't matter. Every single nation, regardless of the tools in their hand, are a tool in the hand of the Lord. How should a nation respond to the Lord knowing that he is sovereign? I am awesome. I can do whatever I want. I can alter the geopolitical landscape like taking uh, eggs out of the nest 
of a laying hand? No, that, that's the wrong attitude. Do we have that attitude as a nation? We should repent for placing our trust in aircraft carriers. We should repent for placing our trust in nuclear warheads or in any particular administration. We are a tool in the hand of the Lord. If we do not acknowledge Him, we will be cast away as surely as Assyria was of old. It's only a matter of time. Thirdly, how the Lord shames nations. He humiliates them. Their stature is humiliated. Verse 14, Nahum 1, The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. We see in this verse, decree versus decree. The nations write laws. Assyria had decrees. We heard Ramshika, whatever his name was, the counselor, declaring these are the words from the imperial power of Sennacherib. But the Lord has given a commandment about Assyria. Decree versus decree, which one will win? The Lord's decree always wins. The Lord's word never fails. It stands forever. It will not wither. The word of man, the decree of nations, the policies of, a, of any world power will crumble, will fizzle, will prove foolish. But the commandment of the Lord stands forever. And if His commandment is against a nation, they have no chance lest they repent, lest they submit to that commandment. If it's a war of words, the Lord will always win. And He will do so in, by demonstrating His power in great judgments. The law of man is a foolish instrument indeed if it does not reflect the law of God. We marched last week. Some of you may have been out there as well. The March for Life. I am told that the longest running protest movement in America today is those who stand against the injustice of codifying the destruction of innocent life in the womb by the so-called laws of our nation. A rogue court in, a Roe v, in the Roe v. Wade decision, the so-called Supreme Court of our land, thought that in their supremacy they could overturn the law of God and justify the taking of innocent life in the womb. The Psalms have something to say about that as well. Codifying injustice by statute. But the law of God says something else. And yes, it has been four decades since this foolishness has been codified into our law. But as long as we stand under that decree as this nation, we are declaring war against the decree of the Lord that says, Thou shalt not murder. Who will win? Who will win? I encourage you to march on the right side because at a certain point of God's choosing, a reckoning will come. And if we do not repent, this nation and any other who slaughters the innocent will answer for their injustice. And that will be a fearful day indeed. Because the Lord is jealous and avenging and wrathful, and He takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies, and He does not suffer long with those who destroy the helpless, the vulnerable, the weak, and defenseless. He hates that kind of thing. And His commandment stands against ours, and we had better bow to Him. Lord, You have granted us patience. May we repent. No, no more shall Your name be perpetuated from the house of Your gods. 
I will cut it off. Dynasty versus dynasty. The Messiah, his dynasty was preserved in the preservation of the nation of Israel. But the dynasty of the king of Assyria came to absolute ruin. Again, we pick up a reference to this in Isaiah 37. Isaiah has sought the Lord because Assyria is threatening Judah itself. The Lord promised Hezekiah, I'm sorry, uh, Hezekiah has sought the Lord. Isaiah has promised uh, through the word of God that he will intervene. This is what happens when Sennacherib and company tried to come against Judah and their king sought the Lord. Verse 36, the angel of the Lord went and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Remember, never mind the numbers. One angel, one night, 185,000 corpses. The word of God, the prayers of a righteous king, plus one angel equal absolute nuclear annihilation, as it were, of the enemy camp. The people arose early the next morning. Behold, all of these were, or these were all dead bodies. Verse 37, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon's son reigned in his place. Dynasty versus dynasty, temple versus temple. His gods couldn't save him from his own sons. His dynasty was all screwed up when his sons slaughtered him, humiliated him in his own place of worship, and then, a tried, then ran away, and then a third son assumed the throne. Assyria was thrown into chaos in the upper echelons of power and in the mighty army that was threatening Judah. Their stature was absolutely humiliated. Meanwhile, Hezekiah in the next chapter comes down with a disease and he seeks the Lord in his temple, the temple of the Lord. The Lord answers him and extends his life. Hezekiah confesses, the Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to a boil and he may recover. Hezekiah also said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Hezekiah takes refuge in the true temple. Sennacherib was taking refuge in the house of Nisroch, his God. And we see that his position was humiliated. Meanwhile, Hezekiah's prayers were answered. His life was extended. His nation was defended. The enemies were defeated. And he continued on his throne. Lastly, this morning, the Lord shames nations by his surpassing word. Through his surpassing word. This is where the gospel comes in. In verse 15 of Nahum 1, and we see the significance of these judgments speaking far beyond the immediate circumstances. There is much more going on here in redemptive uh, history as we read. Notice these words, how familiar they may be. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, Nahum 1.15, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. These words may sound familiar from the book of Isaiah as well. This is because in Isaiah 52, this language of the beautiful feet of him who publishes peace, who proclaims the gospel that is good news, are echoed. Isaiah says in 52.7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, 
who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now there was that foolish counselor that published news on the border of Judah and came and said, we are, we're going to conquer you like we've conquered all the other tribes. And then there was the prophet Isaiah who published the news upon Hezekiah's prayerful entreaty that tomorrow, tomorrow the Lord will decimate the enemy and will save his people. Those 185,000 are slaughtered. And I imagine how cool it would be to be the first guy, curious and bold enough, to go out and see why all the silence on the other side of our walls. You get up the courage, you grab a couple buddies, you sneak behind a bush, you peek over the top, and things are strangely quiet. Not so much as smoke rising from a fire, no clatter of weapons, no, uh, no uh, clatter of swords from the sentries moving back and forth, and you see a foot sticking out of a tent. You go a little closer, and sure enough, there's a dead man. wonder why he died, and pretty soon you become aware that this entire encampment, almost 200,000 soldiers, are all dead. So what do you do? You're excited as can be. You turn around, and you run back to that city. What are you now? You are a herald of good news. You are a proclaimer of gospel. And that gospel is, God has slaughtered our enemies. Come on and look. Come on and look. Now imagine the music to the ears that would be to everyone holed up in the city, rationing their food, eating just a little bit at a time, thinking they'll either die by starvation, or by fire being overrun by siege towers. And when that news starts to echo through the city, all oh, the peace that floods into the heart, the joy that rushes into the soul, the rejoicing that fills the streets, people begin to share their food with their neighbors and they praise the Lord, and they kiss the king, and they cry, long live Hezekiah, his God has saved us. And they go out, and they, uh, in, and they encounter the enemy camp, and they take all the spoils of war, and they celebrate this great victory. And for a moment there, you know, the other day, the, our football team, our national, or the or, uh, NFL football team won, uh, beat the uh, Saints, and we were in an establishment uh, watching the game, and of course it came down to this last play. I promise this is going to be the first and last sports analogy maybe I'll ever use. <laughs> Some of you are laughing right now. So at this, you know, it comes down to the last play, and the place erupts in joy over this, you know, foolish uh, touchdown, whatever in the grand scheme of things. And it, it occurred to me, I was talking to Evan, I thought, you know, there was 30 minutes there, I'm sorry, maybe 30 seconds, where you could hug anybody in that entire restaurant and then no one would think it was weird. But after about 30 seconds or maybe a few minutes, maybe five minutes, Jack says about five minutes, that window closes and then it'd be awkward again. Well, for, for the 30-second window, the joy of this great accomplishment floods the soul and this knowledge of peace introduces good news that sets the captives free in their emotions to exalt, to enjoy. And that's just a little snapshot of what we have in view here. Now, the amazing thing about the true good news, the fact that all the enemies of Christ are slaughtered, is that that window of opportunity, where it's okay to rejoice and to hug a stranger, as it were, never ends. We are the family of God forever, 
because of the exploits of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords who defeated Nineveh, defeated Assyria, defeated Babylon, defeated Persia, defeated Rome, defeated the British Empire, may one day soon defeat America and our empire. It's in his hands. And one day will defeat every single king of the earth and be exalted on his throne in the new heavens and new earth where all that remains are those who rejoice because their enemies have been slaughtered, chief among them their sin and the hell that they deserve. And that joyful marriage supper of the Lamb never ends. When God demonstrated his power over Assyria, it was a snapshot of his victory in the gospel. Turn to Romans chapter 10 and this language of Beautiful Feet publishing peace is brought up yet again. So incredible. Romans is a book all about the victory exploits of Christ in the gospel, of course. And we see that those who trust in Him rejoice in one who has declared victory over the greatest of all enemies and has done so in the most glorious campaign of all. In regards to the preaching of the gospel, Paul says in verse 14, But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Praise the Lord. This is the surpassing word of God that was evident even in this occasion in Nahum chapter 1. The Lord brought the nations to shame and he did so by foiling the schemes of the counselors by breaking the strength of this imperial power, by humiliating their stature, pride, and influence, and, by, and through it, all the while, proclaiming His surpassing word. I am the God who declares victory over my enemies, will publish peace like never before, and bring the gospel far beyond these mountains, till one day all the earth has heard the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. Christ alone. And it's almost as if Nahum has a glimpse into this glorious future when he says, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Those words will one day come true. In Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth that John sees in his vision, such will be the, it will be the case at that time that never again will the worthless pass through the people of God. But nothing but glorious good news, gospel, and peace will be the ever-present reality as we worship our conquering King and Lord of Lords. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of glorious triumph in your holy scriptures. We thank you that you have manifest your glory in many ways all through history, defeating your enemies, preserving your people, proclaiming your word. As we have beheld your word today, may it move us to faith and encouragement, to repent of idolatry and place our trust in you alone. Thank you that your gospel is alive and well, and that it will continue to be proclaimed generation after generation. No one, Lord, lives in Nineveh anymore. It's just ruins. New city has replaced it, probably replacing the last city before it and before it. And so will be the course of all the nations who exalt themselves above 
knowledge of you, they will be destroyed. But we are a peculiar people by your grace alone, a nation set apart, Lord Jesus, by the blood of Christ alone. And we thank you that our national identity is in you and that you have made us in Christ a royal priesthood. We thank you for the power and the faith-giving reassurance of your holy word. May we walk in light of its truths this week. And if there are any here who have not bowed before the conquering and the saving Lord of glory, I pray that you would use today's message to draw them to repentance, confessing their sin before you and agreeing with your word, repenting and following Jesus Christ, their King and Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.